If you would turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1. And uh, our section tonight is 12 through 17. And I want to pick it up at verse 11, which is, I know, kind of in the middle of a sentence. But it gives us Paul's appreciation for the grace uh, shown to him, which he's going to highlight in the section we're reading. So 1 Timothy 1, we'll pick it up at verse 11. "In, In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, with which I have been entrusted... I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent insolent opponent. But I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. We come to the first of what we know are the five faithful sayings. Some of you who've been around a while know that a few years ago, I preached a a series of sermons, five sermons on the five faithful sayings. So we come back to the first of them tonight, and we will cover all five if we make it through the pastoral epistles, because they're all in the pastoral epistles, 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus, all the faithful sayings. But there's a bit of a prelude to the faithful saying, the faithful saying that he's going to, that he gives us. Uh, Verse 15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. Uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. That's the um, that's the faithful saying. But before we get there, there's some preliminary remarks that Paul makes that are important for us to appreciate. They come in the context of his appreciation as he mentions there in verse 11 uh, that um, what he's teaching is in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. And he expresses great appreciation for the grace that God has given to him to entrust to him the gospel of grace which he is proclaiming. And so it's in the context of his uh, outburst of sincere, warm gratitude that he he gives us uh, several thoughts and 
preparation for giving us that faithful saying. There are three particular uh, ones that he gives us in this section. The first is he thanks God, thanks particularly Christ Jesus for giving him strength. Paul understood his own weakness, especially when he came to know the Lord by grace. And he understood that as gifted as Paul was, and if you go back to Philippians chapter 3 and read the, the listing of the different things that equip him, Paul was a man of a, a great accomplishment. He was a man of great gifts, great natural abilities, great educational training. Uh, he was a very gifted man. Uh, well qualified for all kinds of uh, noble responsibilities. But when he came to know the Lord, he realized how weak he was. And that he of himself did not have the ability to do the work God had given to him. And it's instructive for you and for me as we think about what it is that God calls us to. It's, we're only able to do it if we're enabled by God's strength. And here specifically through Christ Jesus our Lord. And so he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord. He sees that he's the one who is enabling him to serve. The second thing that he's very grateful for is that he judged me faithful or trustworthy or reliable. Um, The blending of these terms kind of in together. That God God had set his affection upon Paul and judged and determined that he would make him faithful and that he would be trustworthy with the message given to him. God wants you and I to be faithful and trustworthy in the responsibilities he has given to us. He's thankful here on the first part again because God appointed him to this service. Uh, Christ who gave him strength, Christ who judged him faithful, is also the one who appointed him, designated him to serve as a minister of the gospel. Uh, No one takes that responsibility, or I should say, no one should take that responsibility to himself on his own. Now, sometimes men do. Uh, Men get a sense of their own importance. And it's a grave, grave mistake. It's a grave, grave error when men do that. The only way that we, that a minister of the gospel can serve in any kind of way that's even somewhat helpful and effective is if all the glory goes to God. And that's true of all of us in whatever calling we have. All the glory has to go to God. It's him. uh, It's his work 
He's the one that sets us apart for these things. And so Paul begins with a word of thanks at the grace that was entrusted to him by Jesus enabling and uh, judging him faithful and appointing him. And then in verse 13, part of the prelude, the second part of the prelude to the faithful saying is Paul acknowledges his abusive past. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, insolent opponent. He doesn't minimize the fact that he vigorously opposed the gospel of Christ. And we go back and read his story in the book of Acts. We know that when Stephen was executed in Acts chapter 7, who was there as a witness to the execution, approving of it? It was Paul and people who were part of the uh, force executing Stephen, throwing the stones. They laid their cloaks at Paul's feet. That was kind of like their testimony. I agree with what we're doing. I'm participating in what we're doing. And Paul's reception of those cloaks is his affirmation that this was a right and good thing. And then he went, the account goes on to talk about how he went about breathing threats and took warrants for arrest all the way to Damascus, pretty far from Jerusalem. And he was, uh, he acknowledges his sin, his, his sin and the violence of his sin. I received mercy, he says, because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. He un- he confesses he was an unbeliever. He was a faithful Jew, but he was an unbeliever as far as Christ is concerned. Uh, One of our hymns has the phrase, um, I know not why God's wondrous grace to me he hath made known, nor why unworthy Christ in love redeemed me for his own. And then it goes on, but I know whom I believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Paul acknowledges his own sinfulness as a prelude to this faithful saying. And then the third part of this prelude or preparation is then Paul again overflows in a uh, in a, a, at the superabounding grace to him in verse 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. <clears throat> and this word for overflowed is kind of a, um, uh, a superabounding grace. This is the way Paul phrases it. And it's not unusual for him actually to use that kind of phrase. Have you ever... Have you ever talked about God's superabounding grace in your life? You know, hopefully you're amazed about it. In Romans 5, I won't have you turn to these, but just to read you a few others. In Romans 5:20, where sin abounded, grace uh, superabounded or super overflowed all the more. It's a another one of his superabounding phrases. In 2 Thessalonians 1:3, faith Super abounds, super increases, it grows beyond measure. 
Paul has such a, an interesting connection with this idea of it's far beyond we could all ask or think. In 1 Thessalonians 3.10, we are praying super abundantly with more intense earnestness. Uh, the Philippians 4.7, the peace of God surpasses, kind of a superaboundingly surpasses all understanding. Paul has a great appreciation for the amazement and the amazing aspect of God's grace. It just fills him with a sense of awe. Uh, it's when we, it's, it's those times when you sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And when you sing it, it's not just the words you're singing anymore. It's the meaning that you're singing. And you begin to kind of get a catch in your throat. It's kind of hard to finish it. You're amazed at that grace. And when you think of the person who authored it, who was super amazed at God's grace to him when he had lived such an ungodly life. So this prelude of Paul's thankfulness to God having set him apart and enabled him, uh, even in the, especially in the light of his own violence against God's cause and uh, the abundant grace that God pours out into his life, he then gives us the faithful saying. <clears throat> and I'm just going to, the, the King James kind of flows to me better. There's, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance or all acceptation. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And as I mentioned, it's the first of five faithful sayings only found in Paul and only found in the pastoral epistles. We have a few other places in the New Testament that talk about, that use a phrase about a distinctive saying. But the phrase, a faithful saying, is only in Paul in these letters. And there's a connection to these faithful sayings. And we're going to see the, see that more carefully as we go through them. But let me just list them for you. So the first faithful saying is this one, 1 Timothy 1.15, grace in saving sinners. The second one is 1 Timothy 3.1, which is uh, talking about the office of an elder. It's grace in a noble work. 1 Timothy 4.9 and 10, it's grace in a disciplined life. 2 Timothy 2, 11 through 13, grace in God's faithfulness. And the fifth one is in Titus 3, 8, grace in the work of the Holy Spirit or salvation by grace alone. And the significance of the beginning of this phrase, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance Uh, The significance of that phrase is it's a marker for us. It's um, 
if you mark your Bibles and you might use a highlighter or you might use a pencil or a pen to underline it, uh, you might circle things you want to have stand out to you. Well, this is like using all of those together. It's wanting your <clears throat> undivided attention at the significance of this. Uh, it's highlighting it in contrast to the false teaching, in one sense, that Paul warned about in the early part of the letter. But of all the teachings, it's something that Paul wants you to, to get into your minds and into your hearts, to have it highlighted in your thought more than anything else. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. And the saying is this, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the saying, that phrase, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You can, I want to break it down for you here in a minute, but you can see that it's growing out of some of the words of Christ. When Jesus said, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That was why he came, was to call sinners. Or in Mark 2, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And in Luke 19, for the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. So there are four elements to this faithful saying that he wants us to grab a hold of. The first is Christ Jesus. And we've been on our Sunday mornings reflecting on those particular names of Christ. Uh, Christ being the anointed one, the Messiah. Uh, This one came to fulfill all the promises and the prophecies of the Old Testament. This was the one who was the anointed one. Uh, It was the one in uh, Psalm 110 where God says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. He's the anointed one, the Christ, the Messiah, and he's the Savior. Uh, Christ Jesus, his name, is uh, a reminder of all that he came to do. It's uh, a marvel of uh, what, of, of who, uh, who he is. It makes a marvel of what he came to do. Uh, if we go back to think about Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. You see where all that begins? It begins with this mind that's in Christ Jesus, who is in very nature God, but he was willing to surrender that, not his godhood, not his deity, but his enjoyment of that and take upon himself the form of a servant. So the name Christ Jesus as the first element of this 
faithful saying is a very significant uh, element for us to appreciate the wonder of what he came to do. The second element is Christ Jesus. The second element is came into the world. There's a idea of the presupposition of his preexistence prior to that event of him coming into the world. He is the eternal God. He's the eternal word. He has always existed. Uh, He's the God man. Uh, Jesus says, I came from the father and I've come into the world. And we know from different parts of our study, the word world has different senses and different meanings. But here it would be his coming into the world uh, in terms of location, but perhaps also particularly coming into the world as an ethical idea. Not only the world of this, this world of location, but he came into a world that was darkened by sin. He's the light of the world. But the light of the world came into darkness. Christ Jesus came into the world. It's a revelation of his incarnation. It's a revelation of his humility. And it's an amazing thing. Are you willing to humble yourself? Sometimes we are. But there's sometimes we don't really care for humbling ourselves. And we don't experience the, we're not from the exalted position that Christ was. This is an amazing thing. That Christ Jesus would come into the world. It's a marvel of his grace and his love. But why did he come? What was his purpose? Christ Jesus, second part, came into the world Third, to save. His purpose in coming into this world was to save people, to deliver people. It was to rescue people. He didn't come into this world to make salvation possible. He did not come into this world just to give people an opportunity to be saved. But he came into this world to accomplish redemption, to purchase redemption for a people. He came to effectively do God's work. He didn't come to make people better. He didn't come to make society better. He didn't come to free us from pain, but he came to save, to redeem from the penalty of God's holy wrath. And the fourth part, which makes it all the more amazing as well, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. You know, when you look at Romans, And um, go ahead and turn there with me. Romans chapter 5. 
In Romans chapter 5, beginning at verse 6, it says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, this brings the marvel to a a wonderful crescendo. Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. As Paul would say, we might for a righteous person possibly sacrifice something, and for a good person we might dare to die. But we're not good people. We're sinners. We're those who, not merely sinners, we are um, enemies. Enemies of God. The carnal mind, Paul says in Romans 8, is enmity or hatred against God. And Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To purchase our redemption. To purchase redemption for those who Charles Wesley in his hymn, And Can It Be, would describe us as fast bound in sin in nature's night. Or as Paul would say, we're dead in trespasses and sins. We're helpless and hopeless. Is preaching throwing out a life preserver to drowning men? No. Preaching the gospel is throwing out a life preserver to dead men. Praying that God might in his mercy give them life so that they could embrace the life preserver, which is Christ. And the reason we can confidently proclaim the truth is because of this faithful saying, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And we praise God and thank him for that. But there's a postlude. Talk to you about a prelude. There's a, the saying itself, then there's a postlude. And the postlude has a couple different elements to it. The first is Paul's statement, uh, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief, or whom I'm the worst. That's not part of the faithful saying. The faithful saying is simply, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Paul adds his comment, of whom I am chief. <clears throat> now, is he simply bad-mouthing himself? Is this, is this just kind of a, a moment of depression in Paul? He's just uh, um, grousing here and, and um, saying bad things about himself. No, it's not. What it is in Paul and what it is in you and me, when we really understand the gospel, 
when we really understand saving grace, you and I begin to understand our desperate need and our desperate unworthiness of that grace. So he wasn't just simply in a depressive mood griping about his situation of whom I'm the worst. He is acknowledging how desperately he needs that grace. When grace begins to be at work in your life and in mine, we begin to acknowledge uh, how far we are from God and how much we need God's grace. And he goes on to talk a little more about that. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. You see, by grace, you begin to know yourself. And then you begin to understand that if God has mercy, he might use grace given to you as an encouragement to other people to seek grace from God as well. It's not our goodness that draws people to God. It's our, the great grace that God poured out into our lives. That's what can be a testimony. Well, if Christ loved him, he could love me. That's our message to other people. Christ could love me. That's an amazing thing. And he can love you too. And so Paul expresses from his personal point of view uh, his humility as, in, as the worst of sinners. And not that he's any, more wor- any, any worse than you and I. You and I feel we're the worst. We understand our great need. Gordon Clark writes, it's an expression of Paul's own gratitude for grace. Each of us must regard himself as chief of undeserving sinners and praise God for his mercy and grace. Uh, Or Charles Wesley, again in that hymn, And Can It Be, you know his refrain, died he for me? Who caused this pain for me? who him to death pursued, amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? You see, that's the amazing thing. That's what Paul is expressing here. Not, look how worthless I am, but look at how God had such marvelous grace on me. Even though I didn't deserve it. And then, so that's the, in a sense, the, the, the near goal of Paul is an, an acknowledgement of grace to himself. But then his ultimate goal is God to get the glory. <coughs> Excuse me. <clears throat> and um, again, I'll read. Let me read the King James for verse 17. Now unto the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, John Calvin remarks about this doxology that Paul just spontaneously explodes with. His enthusiasm breaks out into this exclamation since he could find no words to express his gratitude. 
These sudden outbursts of Paul come mainly when the vastness of the subject overpowers him and makes him break off what he is saying. For what could be more wonderful than Paul's conversion? At the same time, he admonishes us all by his example that we should never think of the grace shown in God's calling without being lost in wondering admiration. This sublime praise of God's grace swallows up all the memory of his former life. How great a deep is the glory of God. So he's forgotten all about the worst of sinners and he's lost totally, completely in the glory of God. Now unto the eternal king, the king of the ages, the one who's immortal, imperishable, invisible, God only wise, to him be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That's the goal. It's the goal of all we do as a church. It should be the goal of all you do as as a Christian. It's the goal of the gospel that all all glory goes to God. And we is is found completely we found and find ourselves completely adoringly captivated by our God and amazed in him. That's that's where we're headed. That's where the gospel is driving us to. May we be lost in love and wonder and praise. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the wonder of your love, for this faithful saying, reminder that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Thank you for pouring out that mercy into our lives. And may we be strengthened and encouraged and given new hope to live for you and walk in your ways. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.